Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 88. This is one of those special episodes where we sort of interview people about a very specific topic. So there's going to be no news. It's also just myself here this week, uh, Michael. Again, the, the part of the reason is because the guests we have this week, we have um, Sharar Uni and Raul Garcia. And uh, they're both colleagues of mine uh, in the Azure SQL Database team. And this week, we're here to talk about best practices for securing uh, SQL databases, SQL Server databases, both Azure SQL Database, uh, say SQL MI, SQL Managed Instance, um, SQL in, uh, in VMs as well, and virtual machines, so IaaS instances of SQL Server. Before we get stuck into the actual content, gentlemen, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, Sharat, why don't you go first? Yeah, thanks, Michael, for having me here. Uh, about myself, I am the Principal Engineering Security Manager for Azure Databases Red Team. I have about a decade or more uh, of experience in all offensive security. So I can talk today a lot about the different types of attack techniques and mostly cater to uh, Azure databases and, and SQL in specific and talk about what are the different things that I've seen. And I am Raul Garcia. I'm currently working on a static analysis uh, using CodeQL and cryptography at Microsoft. But for more than a decade, I was uh, doing security testing and uh, security assurance for SQL Server. And I, and since then, I have been helping uh, uh, red teams and blue teams uh, attacking and defending SQL. All right, so let's move on to our topic, um, which is, as I mentioned, securing SQL databases. And actually, more accurately, looking at it from almost like an attacking perspective, right? Uh, you know, what, what things we see attackers doing and how we can help mitigate those and some of the best practices that, uh, that we can employ to mitigate those, uh, those attacks. Because, you know, attacks are going to happen, right? The big difference is, are you, you know, are you compromised? Attacks are going to happen. So we need to make sure that the compromised part doesn't happen. So let's talk about some of those topics. So let's start with a, a subject that is near and dear to my heart, and that is least privilege. And in fact, one of the things about least privilege is that it's one of the cornerstones of zero trust, right? So in the case of Microsoft, we have three main pillars. One of them is, is operating at least privilege. And what that really means is just operating, doing the tasks that are required. That includes users and processes uh, at, at the minimum amount of privilege to get the job done and absolutely no more. So Shara, why don't we start with you on some of the best practices around operating as a SQL databases uh, at least privilege? So to your point, Michael, uh, least privilege is something that we hold very close to our hearts. And every discussion we have around security fixes or security bugs, we are most of the times emphasizing how a least privilege could have avoided a lot of the disaster. So with uh, SQL databases in particular, what a lot of uh, times happens is you see the front-end web application or an app service uh, that needs to talk to the database having uh, a very high privilege, right? Uh, a lot of times what we overlook is the fact that while the application only needs to do a very few tasks, like maybe reading data or uh, updating specific tables, we are granting uh, high privileges like to an extent where we give sysadmin access uh, to the database user that is uh, connecting uh, via the application, right? now. Not only is the fact that uh, the application compromise can now uh, kind of make the problem worse because the database is uh, database user 
is high privileged, so you can do a lot of fancy things that that we'll talk about uh, in the in the next uh, part of our uh, podcast. The biggest challenge is the fact that uh, we are now uh, giving an attacker an opportunity to do more uh, with the database credentials, right? To add to that, there are times where we see that the database service itself is running with high privileges, right? Which is bad, again, in the case where you're able to execute commands as the database service on the operating system. I mean, what comes to my mind uh, as an attacker is we are always trying to see how can we move from point A to point B, and does that give us uh, additional privileges? If yes, we always uh, take that direction because that's uh, where we get the most bang for our buck, right? And in case of both uh, SQL Server uh, database privileges and SQL Service privileges, what we have found often is that there is more than needed privileges assigned, and that's always bad. I completely agree. And I would like to add one more detail that is particular to to SQL Server. When you have a scenario where the the SQL user needs to execute uh, elevated functions that is beyond uh, read or write data, Uh, for example, you need to execute certain administrative commands from the application. Uh, instead of having to, uh, to connect with a highly privileged user for that purpose on, on your application, one tool that is at your disposal is uh, store procedures and signatures that will allow you for a very controlled escalation of privileges from a low privileged user to do exactly the operation that you need and nothing else. And that's unfortunately a tool that, that is uh, often overseen when, when looking at how to how to mitigate and lower the privileges on a system. So an example there would be, let's say a user has read and write access to one table. Let's just make something up. But they need to do like one specific task, just one little itty bitty task and just for a very small, small amount of time. So you could actually write a store procedure, digitally sign it, and then grant the user access to that store procedure. And then, so that user or that or a role or something can actually execute that store procedure, but that's all they can do, right? They can't do anything else elevated and whatever that particular store procedure can do, it can do and it can do it in a very, very constrained way. So is that kind of the pattern that you're thinking of, Raul? Yes, exactly. And, and that will help you to, to control exactly what are the privileges of that user. Instead of granting full DBO access to, to that user, you just need to grant permission to to run that procedure that you mentioned, and the signature itself will give the DBO-like privileges for that operation. Yeah, and the key thing about the signature, right, is the one it verifies that you know that particular store procedure is trusted because of you know signature stuff, but also that it's not been tampered with, right? So, a, so someone can't come in and modify the store procedure and then get it to do stuff above and beyond. So, and again, you know, signature stuff, right? That's that's exactly the idea. Um, yeah, I know. I know very few people who actually know that. <laughs> to be absolutely honest with you, so yeah, if you you know if you're out there and you think you need to grant special privileges to you know broadly to users, you know seriously consider this signatures on store procedures that have very specific requirements, and then put an access policy around that store procedure. You know, restricting the store procedure access, you know, to Jim and Mary or you know whatever whatever you need to do. Fantastic. The funny thing about least privilege 
is that if you run a sysadmin, then everything just works, right? Well, of course it works. You're sysadmin. What the heck do you expect? But so does the attacker's code. That's the problem. If you get compromised, then the attacker's code runs at sysadmin too. So if you take another pillar from zero trust, which is assume breach, so if you assume breach and the, you know, the, the environment is compromised, you know, now what? Well, the attacker's running as a sysadmin. So that's you know, absolutely an absolutely pathological example. So yeah, least privilege is, is such an important design principle. I mean, it's been around since the 70s. I mean, the original Salzer and Schroeder paper from the 70s, I'll put a link to that if no one's ever read it. If you're not read it, you should look at it. And you know, in there is least privilege. Um, you know, so it's been around for you know, almost 50 years. The next one is, and I don't see this a lot. I mean, I have seen it with a couple of customers where they actually run the process. Now, I'm not talking about connecting to SQL Server. I mean, people actually run the SQL Server process in a VM or even on-prem as an administrative account. Now, by default, it runs as what's referred to in Windows as a, uh, as a virtual service account. Um, and it's MS, it's like anti-service MS SQL Server, if I remember correctly. Um, and it's not an admin. It's you know very least privileged account. It's a custom account. But yeah, if you're running the process itself elevated, then that's also opening you up for issues as well. So, um, Sharat, you want to have any comments there about issues you've seen or the dangers of running the SQL process as an as an elevated account? One of the things that uh, you would do uh, as a red teamer is once you have any sort of initial access, you're looking to pivot into other systems or exfiltrate as much data or credentials uh, so that you can use it for your uh, further uh, pivoting. So with SQL service running as system, uh, which is uh, godlike privileges on your Windows operating system, uh, a lot of things can be done. We we will talk about this in a little bit, uh, usage of things like uh, XP command shell or, or SQL agent jobs, uh, but SQL Server does have some powerful tools uh, which can be used to run OS commands, right? And one of the things that you can do uh, as a system on Windows is essentially read memory or dump memory, right, of the system so you get credentials of the network. And once you have a sufficient privileged network credentials, you can then laterally move uh, within the network, uh, compromising more machines, right? Uh, So it makes the attacker's life a lot more easier having uh, system process compromise uh, because that gives an attacker a very uh, solid initial access and also ways to establish persistence on your network. It all sounds very dangerous, but it it all happens because uh, we think that it's easier to just run something as system rather than going back and doing the investigation of like, okay, why exactly should I run this as system? Is there a better way to do this, right? Again, going back to principle of least privilege. Yeah, but I, I would like to make an emphasis on that principle of least privilege. 20 years ago, and I'm dating myself uh, here, but 20 years ago, running SQL Server as local system was unfortunately very common. And thankfully, uh, thanks to, to the new defaults that Michael mentioned, that's no longer the case, at least not as often as it was 20 years ago. But for the few people who are still running as local system or other privileged account, please uh, consider the, the the scenario that Sarah just mentioned and uh, 
make sure that you minimize privileges, find what you really need and uh, make it work accordingly instead of just looking for the, the easy solution. Actually, I want to go one step further than that. I mean, my advice would be just stick with the defaults, right? Unless you have a really, really good reason to change the SQL Server process identity, just, just don't, right? Just stick with the default. Things just work. If there's some funky requirement, then, you know, evaluate it, look at, you know, what changes you might need to make and understand the risks. But for the most part, the defaults are, are more than adequate for the, the vast majority of users of the, of the environments out there. By the way, this only applies to SQL Server on-prem, SQL Server in, in a VM, uh, in the case of Azure SQL Database, which will come on to at the very, very end, you don't control the process identity. Um, it's all controlled by Azure, and it is running at least privilege. So to round out the least privilege section, I just want to talk about managed identities really fast, and then we can move on to some uh, some historically common attack vectors. Don't underestimate the value of running a connection out of a, a virtual machine, for example, into SQL Server or, say, an Azure Function app, and using managed identities allowing that managed identity to have just least privilege uh, into the environment, into the SQL Server environment. Um, you don't need to persist. In fact, we may, want to, we may want to actually want to touch on this real quick before we move on to, I suppose it really is like a common attack vector, and that is connection strings. <clears throat> right? If you have a connection string into SQL Server, which you do, you know, an application has to have a connection string to connect, um, there's a whole bunch of options in there. And one of them is to use SQL authentication with a username and password. Well, the problem is, where do you store that username and password, right? Do you put it in the connection string? Well, if it's in the connection string, where do you store the connection string? You know, and if it's on disk, well, how do you protect this connection string from being compromised? Because you know, if an attacker now has that connection string, the attacker now has a uh, use, an identity and a, uh, and a password. So another way of doing that is to use a managed identity. Um, and that way, the identity and the credential is actually managed by Entra ID, which was you know, Azure Active Directory. So, so let's just take an example of a VM. Let's say you've got a Node.js application running in a virtual machine and it connects to SQL Server. You could actually run the VM as a managed identity and have it such that when the Node application calls out to SQL Server, it actually uses the managed identity of the virtual machine. So there's no credentials stored anywhere. It's all managed by Entra ID. That is the correct way of doing it. That way there is no credential on the box. So if we go back to zero trust again, assume breach, in the environment, if you whack the environment, uh, you know, and the attacker is now in the VM, there is no credential there. There's none whatsoever, right? It's all because it's managed by Entra ID, you know, what was Azure, Azure Active Directory. So that's always, in my opinion, anyway, when I'm looking at threat models, both customer and internally, I'm always, when it comes to client authentication, I'm basically always looking for managed identities. So, Sharad, do you have any comments there about, um, about con uh, connection strings and usernames and passwords? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can, I can talk a little bit about the username password usage. And, and I'm sure we can we can talk a lot more about cred stuffing and other attacks uh, later on. But one of the most common things is uh, once you have access to uh, an app service or or a web app, you are going through the code base, right? Because uh, that's one of the things to do to find additional credentials. And to your point, uh, if it's the SQL connection string with username and password, that gives me access to one other server. So I'm essentially pivoting from one server to web server to like, a SQL server now, right? That's great amount of success. And also the bad things about passwords, as you touched upon, is the fact that once it's compromised, uh, there is a possibility that the same pattern of the password or the same password is used in other services. Now, uh, it's not probably very shocking to say this, but we do know that password reuse is very common, right? Especially for services that are backend, Right, because people always assume that hey, this is 
an easy enough password that I'm going to set for all of my service A. So password reuse is something that can give me additional access to other uh, services within uh, an enterprise or organization. And, and all of those attacks that I just talked about can be mitigated by using something like a managed identity. Much harder for an attacker to get hold of them unless they are actually on that resource. And even if they do, it's very uh, highly unlikely that they can pivot from one resource to another resource because managed identity uh, it ties down to just one resource and dies with that resource. I swear that red teamers can never put a sentence together. No conversation without using the word pivot. It's like, tell me you're a red teamer without telling me you're a red teamer, right? The moment they use the word either lateral traversal or, or pivot, then I know you're, <laughs> you're on a red team somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, Raul, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, yes. Uh, one thing to, to, to also consider is uh, what I have seen many cases is uh, applications that use SQL login and passwords never rotate the password. So that password is there forever. And if that application, uh, well, if the SQL server is uh, connected to the internet, it's a huge opportunity for uh, an attacker to try to, to find your password over time. And since it never changes, you're just helping adversaries. On the same page, uh, one thing that we should always consider is uh, the SA account on SQL server on-premises. If you're using SQL uh, authentication, uh, by default, there's a SA account that is all-powerful in SQL Server. There's an option that you should uh, really consider using that is to disable the SA account. So even if uh, tools out there are trying to, to crack the password for, for SA, they will not succeed because SA is disabled. I'll go one step further. You should probably even treat that as a honeypot, right? If you see people, if you you got alerting turned on and the logs show that people are trying to touch SA, then you know full well that it's probably either Sharat doing it, or um, or it's you know a bad actor, right? So I would I would use that as a honeypot at that point. What do you think? If I don't remember, it will be on the the audit uh, records uh, when when you when you look at them, even if it's disabled, it should still show up. Yeah, because it's, it's an invalid uh, login attempt, right? Yep. If not as a honeypot, it should at least give you an idea of how often you're attacked. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how often. All right, let's, uh, to use a word that Shiraz used a dozen times so far, let's, let's pivot the conversation to um, to common attack techniques, like, at least those that are historically common. Let's start with everyone's favorite. Uh, I'll let you go first this time, Raul. What about XP underscore command shell? Uh, a, fav a favorite topic of mine, XP command shell is, is a really interesting uh, stored procedure, well, extended stored procedure that allows you to execute arbitrary commands on the operating system using the, the SQL Server account. Unfortunately, it's mostly used by attackers. I have seen very few cases where, where customers and, and serious people use it for something productive that cannot be done uh, in other ways. It's disabled by default, but you should still monitor any usage of it. Going back to uh, somebody compromises your SA account or sysadmin user, uh, they can enable it again, and they can use it to run whatever they want, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Raul. It's one of the favorite tools. <laughs> 
as a red teamer. I'm saying this because uh, when you actually get access to a database, you have limited set of commands that you can run using T-SQL commands, right? You're limited to what T-SQL is exposing. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with uh, manipulating tables or, or doing mostly queries that help us manipulate data. That's pretty much it. But with something like XP command shell, it opens up the door to expand it to operating system commands, which is uh, quite interesting as an attacker because now you can do more things using SQL Server, uh, be it things like dumping a process memory or getting your own command and control on that server by executing your own binary, downloading binaries onto the box, or even exfiltrating data from the box to your remote server, right? All of these uh, can be done because you can run the OS command, right? And we talked about it a little bit earlier, depending on what privileges you're running the SQL server or SQL service as on your VM or on-prem, it gives me a, a different set of uh, privileges, right? If I, if I have system access, then I can probably run all possible OS commands and compromise the entire box or potentially get uh, ideas to compromise the network itself. So pretty nifty tool. One other thing that I do want to add is by default, even though it's disabled, what I've seen ton of times is that the user that is running the app service has privileges to go back and enable this XP command shell by setting the configuration, which is as bad, right? Again, going back to least privileges, right? Uh, disabled is great, but make sure that nobody has uh, enough privileges to enable it back again. Yeah, I'll tell you a quick story and then we'll move on to another topic. Uh, back in there, this is a long, long time ago. I uh, had a customer working um, with SQL Server, and they, the, the, the configuration was was absolutely awful. Uh, basically, they were running the processor system, and they had XP underscore command shell enabled. And one day, they couldn't boot the machine. And the reason is someone who was really, really evil um, actually deleted, you know, this is a flashback, uh, but deleted boot.ini um, from the machine. You know, you can't just go deleting boot.ini, right? Well, you can if the process deleting the file is running its system, and um, XP underscore command shell is available with just a simple Dell space slash boot that I and I. Um, yeah, so they couldn't boot the system. It was easy enough to fix, but the point was made, right? You know, don't run elevated and don't enable XP underscore command shell. Neither of those are, have been the default for a long time, right? We don't enable XP underscore command shell by default, and we don't run elevated by default. The process identity doesn't run elevated by default. So yeah, it's magnificent to see. All right, let's pivot again to something that's near and dear to Raoul's heart, which is SQL Agent. Yes, and uh, the way to think about SQL Agent is uh, a scheduler for running automated tasks. But a lot of times people forget that those tasks could be also operating system commands, right? Uh, like running PowerShell scripts, again, on their, the, the context of a, of a service. I forgot if it's going to run under the SQL Server context or under the agent context, but it's still one of those services running arbitrary commands on, on your machine. And uh, a lot of people forget about that part. And it's, it's, again, a tool that I have seen being abused many times. And it's easy to hide because all the tasks are on MSDB. And it's automated. It's not even something that I have to connect 
anymore in order to, for it to execute. I just set it and forget about it. So it's it's very important to use the, the SQL agent role-based uh, access control for managing uh, the agent uh, roles. They have different roles for managing and adding new tasks to view the tasks or nothing at all. And in most cases, uh, people should not have access to those tasks. Yeah, I absolutely agree with uh, Raul. Uh, SQL Agent is pretty powerful uh, in the sense that you can schedule jobs that includes running both command exec as well as PowerShell, right? It's, it's pretty nifty for admins and it totally makes sense why the admins would use it. Uh, but to Raul's point, we have to make sure that these jobs cannot be created, managed, or modified by any user, right? I mean, it's it's fine if you really do have to use uh, agent jobs to do automation, of course, uh, but the RBAC is very important, right? Making sure that we know who is running these roles. And also, to some extent, if there is a way to uh, you know, go back and audit uh, if it's running, if it's run according to the schedule that you want, or if there was any change done to the job, and they're audited events, right? Like if someone goes and modifies a SQL agent task, or adds one, or deletes one, or whatever, changes the identity under which one works, that's a an audited event. So uh, I strongly recommend reviewing the the tasks in the MSDB uh, table themselves. Don't rely exclusively on auditing events. All right, let's uh, let's change another topic, which is this is my one of my favorite topics, and that's SQL injection. Um, unfortunately, we still see SQL injection vulnerabilities. I thought you know this is something that's was long dead, but nope, absolutely not. Um, it's almost like you know 2005 called and want their vulnerabilities back, but we still see SQL injection vulnerabilities. People are rushing their products to market, and uh, they're building you know code that queries backend databases, um, and they have SQL injection vulnerabilities in them. It's not a bug in the database. I just want to point this out. Database just sees a query, right? And all you, essentially what you're doing is you're building up a SQL statement um, that has some untrusted data, and you're probably using something like string concatenation to build up the SQL statement. And the problem there is that you know the, if the attacker controls that string, then they can make the query basically do whatever they want you know, within some confines. So yeah, we still see SQL injection, and doesn't doesn't matter what your language is. You could be using the latest funky languages that everyone loves, like Go and Rust, talking to your favorite backend database and still have SQL injection vulnerability. So it all boils down to using uh, what are often referred to as parameterized queries or placeholders, uh, depending on the library you're using, where um, the, the SQL statement is built up, uh, built up safely. Uh, it's also really important to understand what the attacker controls. Right. So if the attacker controls part of the string that's used to build up the SQL statement or part of the data that goes into the SQL statement, you need you need to make sure that you know you're using good input sanitizing, as well as as well as parameterized queries. Sharad, do you want to explain any more about that or add some more more de- more details? Yeah, I mean, I'll be really quick about this one. I mean, you have summarized it pretty well and covered most of the points. I mean, the thing with SQL injection is, regardless of what language you're writing your code in, ultimately you are going to write the SQL statements to query data, and I've said this before many times that when you write that SQL statement or when you do a code review, there is absolutely nothing wrong with the code because uh, all it's doing is it's a select statement uh, querying data. It looks absolutely fine and works absolutely fine, except for the part that uh, you are accepting uh, untrusted user input to be part of the code, right? When you're not parameterizing your query, which is bad. Unfortunately, we see SQL injection 
even to this date. And the the real factor here is uh, the statement actually works, no matter uh, how you look at it. And it's very hard to tell if that is a security bug or not, unless you uh, really know about SQL injection. So a lot of this is about education and awareness that uh, how do you separate data from code and what is the best way to do that? Yeah, let me add to that and I'll hand it over to Raul. Uh, you, you bring up a really important point there. If you're doing functional testing, the SQL statement works, right? You're doing a nice, normal, everyday, happy, happy path query and everything just works. The problem is in the face of untrusted input. That's why it's so important. One of the core developer skills when I'm talking to developers the core, one of the core skills and one of the core things they have to understand is what is the attacker control? And if the attacker controls incoming data that you then use to build up a SQL statement, that data is essentially toxic waste. And you, you need to treat it as toxic waste and do all the appropriate you know, mitigations and defenses and cleansing of that data and then ultimately parameterize queries to make sure that the, the, uh, the statement is, uh, is safe. Um, one of the definitions that I, I like to use for a secure system is a system that does what it's supposed to do and nothing else. The problem is, in the face of untrusted data and string concatenation to build up SQL statements, you can now start to have unexpected functionality like dropping tables or return more data in the result set that was that was you know unintended. You know, it's that extra it's that extra functionality that has now basically given you. Um, a security vulnerability. I agree 100%. A lot of it's education, use of good libraries, use of correct libraries. But there is something else that we need to look at, and this falls squarely into Raoul's current domain, and that is um, static and dynamic analysis. So Raoul, one thing that you've been working on for the last you know, quite some time is, uh, is CodeQL. Uh, do you want to just give our audience just like a really quick overview of CodeQL and, and explain how it can help them with um, detecting SQL injection vulnerabilities? Absolutely. CodeQL is, is a static analysis tool uh, that the idea is uh, it will uh, instrument your, your code, either if it's uh, uh, interpreted code like JavaScript or if it's a compiled code, it will co- instrument it while you're compiling it and create a, a database that you can query and detect patterns in your code. Uh, and more specifically, uh, the real power of CodeQL is uh, data flow analysis. So you can track the, the we call it taint data from uh, an external source, for example, a web request, et cetera, that will ultimately flow into a SQL command. And if it's coming from an untrusted data, if it's considered tainted, you better know how you are sanitizing and protecting against SQL injection. and, and uh, we, are, we have uh, written queries for that. Uh, they're published in GitHub. Uh, actually, we, um, Microsoft and GitHub, uh, we continue working on that and making improvements. So I, I would like to invite people to try CodeQL. If you like, uh, it will help you to detect the flaws on the application because, uh, as we have already mentioned, this is not a problem on the database itself. It's a problem on the application. And it's, it's important to assume that there are bugs on your application. Uh, it's, it's a mistake. It's, it's easy to miss it. Actually, my, my Pentesting team uh, uh, friends make fun of me because I'm a, a one-trick pony. Every time that I compromise a server, it's through SQL injection. That's the first avenue that I use. But I keep using it because it works. I, we always find something. It's very easy to miss. 
And I would like to emphasize that this is also the reason why uh, we have been talking about least privilege so much. If you constrain what you can do when the account is compromised, when the application has an error like this, you will have a better time than if you're using sysadmin. Yeah, I, wanna, I really want to stress this point. Actually, there's two points I want to stress. The first one is the least privilege aspect. Again, if, if, you're, if the connection is elevated and you have SQL injection, the SQL injection vulnerability can now probably start accessing and doing things above and beyond what a normal user should do. So you, know, you might constrain the user to certain types of SQL, but it doesn't matter if the SQL injection vulnerabilities. So you know, all this thing, all, all that we've talked about so far, all sort of meshes together. They sort of all relate to each other, or they become worse. You know, if you have, you know, if you don't have least privilege, or you have elevated process, or you have XP underscore command shell. I mean, you know, catastrophic. You know, if you had SQL injection, elevated process, XP underscore command shell, and connectors SA, right? I mean, you're just asking for for extreme damage of your data. So yeah, this is uh, the least privilege aspect with SQL injection is critically important. The other thing I really want to point out is CoQL is not just SQL injection, right? There's CoQL. One of the beauties of CoQL is that the, lang- the the queries are literally queries, and you're querying, as Raul mentioned, that essentially when you compile the code with CoQL, it builds up a database uh, that can be queried. It's really cool because you can literally write your own rules. Now, I'm not going to say that, hey, writing your own rules is dead easy, but it sure is a lot easier than having to pay a customer or a company $100,000 to write your new, you know, a new rule for your static analysis tool. And uh, if you have a public GitHub repo, uh, you can use CoQL for free. And you, and you can download CoQL and run it on your own code locally as well. All right, so let's switch attentions now, um, start to sort of think about wrapping this up with a couple of topics. Um, Sharat, I know you have some, some thoughts about how attackers gather credentials. So one of the things that uh, is very common for attackers is to do credential stuffing, right? And one of the common services, uh, if you do a bit of research on the internet, is SQL servers, right? A lot of times what attackers do is harvest credentials uh, through various sources, either through previous data breaches or you know through other channels. And once they have these uh username, password list, they're just going after various services, including SQL servers, right? And what we have found is um, oftentimes SQL servers, unfortunately, are exposed to the internet, which I can say with some level of confidence that you do not ever need to expose your SQL server to the internet because I don't think the customer or any of your services uh, or, or customer is directly talking to the SQL server to fetch raw data, right? There may be some cases, but most times it's some front-end application that is quer- querying SQL server as a backend, right? So there is very less use cases for SQL server to be exposed to the internet, right? Um, so we kind of talked about this a little earlier as to how attackers go after the SA account, right? SA account, uh, high-privileged gives you admin access to SQL database and server. So attackers try to uh, find reused passwords or combination of passwords that are breached to compromise SA account that are uh, exposed uh, on the internet, right? Now, the good thing uh, with uh, Azure SQL databases 
is when you create your own Azure SQL databases, by default, uh, it's not exposed to uh, the internet, right? Uh, you get to choose uh, how you want to expose your server, right? Uh, there, there are multiple ways you can do this. You can say, hey, I want to expose this to all Azure services, meaning any Azure uh, VMs or app services can connect to MySQL databases, or you can explicitly add uh, SQL Server firewall rules, right, which lives in the master database. Um, at the same time, you can also granularly control uh, SQL database firewall rules. So this is saying, uh, hey, I want these databases to be accessible by only these apps or by only these VMs, right? Uh, so this is a great level of protection that you can add to your Azure SQL databases. Do not expose it to the internet and have a allow listed uh, IP addresses from where uh, your SQL server is accessed. Yeah, so I, I think this is really important, you know, the Azure SQL database aspect. And this is the classic sort of shared responsibility model, right, where, you know, some of the security is managed by Azure so that you don't have to. So, for example, things like patching, anti-malware, uh, monitoring, right, that's all taken care of by an army of people. And that's all that, that's their job. That's all they do. It's not like people on part-time, on a part-time schedule. This is precisely what they do. But also the fact that things like least privilege, like the process runs at least privilege, or, you know, the back-end processes run at least privilege. Um, the fact that certain functionality is not enabled by default. Um, so, for example, XP underscore command shell is, is not there. Um, if I remember correctly, Raul, SQL agent is not there, right? Correct. SQL agent is not there. Uh, XP command shell is not there. Right. And there's many other features that are mostly used by attackers and not by normal customers that are not present in, in Azure SQL databases, which is fantastic. It, it is, and yet people still manage to be able to build, you know, industrial strength solutions without those uh, without those components. Of course, that includes SQL Mail. You know, everyone's favorite. I don't know anyone who's used SQL Mail, but that's a that's another discussion for another day. Um, but yeah, so the, the that copath isn't isn't there, right? So that's just so incredibly important because it can't be attacked. If uh, you know, for example, SQL Mail, if it's not there, it can't be attacked. And same same with the other ones. The fact that you can also, you know, by default, as a SQL as a SQL database does not connect to the internet, has no listening ports you must actually connect it to something at some point. Um, that could be, uh, for example, uh, the back end of an Azure function app, or perhaps, you know, say, let's say go, you know, back to my Node.js example, you might have a Node.js application running on a VM, for example, and um, the SQL server, the Azure SQL database is listening on that VM. And you can put a, I'm sure I correct me if I'm wrong here, but you can actually put a rule in place that says traffic into that Azure SQL database must come from that Say Azure Function app or that IP, the back end of the Azure Function app or the back end of the of the uh, the virtual machine. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So you can specify the IP addresses of your VM where your Node.js app is running or your Function app, and allow access to only that specific source. Yep. What about VNet? Yeah, that's another great thing. I mean, now that you brought it up, you can talk about it. You can also have your SQL Server in a virtual network. Meaning you have your Node.js app, I'll take that as an example, which is running on a VM, which is also on a, a VNet. And what you can do is instead of connecting it over the public IP address, you can now have these two VNets or, or these two services connect over the VNet using private IP address all through Azure Backbone. It 
basically gives you some more of flexibility in the sense that you don't really have to maintain an allow list, right? You could add other resources on that VNet and they all will have access to the uh, SQL databases and vice versa. That's an important point, right? Because they're all listening on like, for example, a 10 dot blah, 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 blah address range. It's non-routable. And so everything that's on that VNet can talk to everything else on the VNet, but and the, there doesn't need to be any specialized rules, any network. I mean, you can add extra rules if you want around network restrictions, but you're getting a degree of isolation just because it's on its own private VNet. Yeah, exactly. And all you have to now look at is the network architecture to understand the connectivity. And it's less about managing a, a list of rules that is uh, uh, somewhere uh, hard to read. Well, hard to maintain too, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just one more thing to maintain. All right, let's bring up our last topic, um, and that is Defender for SQL. Huge fan of Defender for SQL. I'm a huge fan of all the Defender products. I think they're magnificent. So Defender for SQL allows you to protect uh, in real time against certain kinds of issues. So, for example, it can detect um, SQL injection. Uh, It can also detect if there's some kind of malicious behavior going on, such as exfiltration doesn't look normal. Raul, if I remember correctly, it also has like an assessment capabilities. Yes, uh, it's the, the vulnerability assessment feature on, on SQL Defender for, for Azure SQL databases. Uh, actually, I wrote the original set of rules for that. It has evolved uh, since then, thankfully. But uh, it's, it's, it's a feature that allows you to, to detect... Uh, who are your principals, what permissions they have, if there's any change on the database configuration, on the tables that you have, permissions that you have. So it's it's, it's a very useful uh, feature to keep track of uh, any changes on your, on your database. Yeah, actually, just a point of clarification. Defender for SQL will also, will also work against SQL Server running in a VM on Azure, on GCP and AWS, which is actually kind of nice, right? So it's not just looking at Azure instances, it can look at uh, AWS and GCP uh, IaaS components as well, which is which is really good. All right, let's, let's start to bring this thing to an end. Um, gentlemen, one thing we always ask our guests is if you had just one thought to leave our listeners with, uh, what would it be? Raul, why don't you go first? The, the one thought that I have would be, uh, there's no silver bullet. You have to consider all aspects, uh, least privilege on the the service account, the user that you're using uh, to connect, uh, the permissions on the database, uh, uh, be aware of SQL injection, be aware of uh, your your tasks, what information you have on, on your uh, SQL agent tasks, etc. So it's not just protect one area and you're done. You have to look at it as, as, as a whole. And uh, reducing the tax surface area, for example, using Azure SQL uh, databases that by default has a, a significantly reduced attack surface area, is, is a huge benefit. Uh, also monitoring uh, everything good that the Defender will bring you uh, is, is something that you have to consider. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Michael. It was a great discussion with Raul as well. So one of the things that I would like to close with is to assume breach at every layer. Right. We talked about uh, a lot of the different attacks. And one thing that you can do, actually everybody can do who is part of the team, is to come up with different things that you can think of if 
a particular component, it doesn't have to be just the front end or the application that is exposed to the internet, right? It can be your middleware, it can be a network appliance that is in between, or it could be the backend, or it could be the SQL database, right? Uh, we ask ourselves at every component uh, level or uh, every identity or user that is uh, involved in that. Uh, this includes even the uh, DevOps credentials, right? We ask ourselves the question of like, hey, what happens if there's a breach here at this point? I, I like what Raul put it as well. There is no silver bullet, but at least what we can understand is what will be the blast radius if any of those identities or components are compromised. So knowing the level of damage to some extent is always, always beneficial in, in the security world, right? Not knowing how far an attacker can get can oftentimes be very, very bad. So I just want to wrap this up. This has been a great conversation. To our listeners, just be aware that you know these two guys, I mean, they live and breathe you know, securing both our own instances of SQL Server, but also work on just making sure that, you know, customers deploy things correctly and so on. They really do come at it from an attack, like a real, real world attack perspective. If you think I'm evil, you should see these guys in action. So with that, let's wrap this up. Again, thank you so much, gentlemen, for taking the time out. I know that uh, you're both incredibly busy. And to all our listeners out there, we hope you found this episode useful. Um, I'd like to think this is a little bit different than some of the other episodes. And stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.